Welcome to the Veterinary Viewfinder. Today on our show, we're going to discuss client relationships. How do we educate those pet owners? What about high-maintenance pet parents? And where and how do we establish boundaries? Today on the Veterinary Viewfinder. I'm Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm Dr. Cindy Courtney. And this is Becky Mosser, Registered Veterinary Technician. I keep the ends out for the tie that fine because you're mine. I walk the line. And guys, today we're going to talk about a topic that doesn't get enough attention, but yet it affects us all. And that is, how do we interact socially, emotionally, and professionally with our clients? We've all heard the horror stories of the client who got too close, or the client who demanded too much. But where are those boundaries, and how do we avoid those messes in the first place? We've got our great co-host, as always, associate veterinarian, Dr. Cindy Courtney, and registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, to tell us what we should do. So guys, let's kick it off. Where are the boundaries with clients, and have you had an experience that went south? Yeah, so I will start off by saying that I am a veterinarian who actually kind of likes high-maintenance clients. And I have a lot of clients, actually, who will sometimes call me up and apologize for asking a lot of questions. And I, I personally tend to like question, like clients who ask questions because that shows me they're dedicated. Uh, but there are definitely times where that stretches too far. When we know we have a 30-minute appointment slot, we've got to get on to that next client. And I get tempted to push that too far and I have to stop myself, make sure we move that client education to a later time, maybe call them later on. So I have to learn to move on. Well, Cindy, that that brings up a really good point, and that is the definition, I guess we should start with, is what is a, a high-maintenance client or what is an inappropriate relationship with a client? Becky, from a technician perspective, wh- where are those definitions? It's so hard because I think that every veterinarian and every veterinary professional has different lines, but I really think that we have to help teach our clients what those lines are going to be, and I, I, I have to say I think we kind of can model the human field. Um, I think that there are clients out there who will respect boundaries and those that push them a little bit further. But at the same time, I think sometimes we can be a little bit quick to write off um, our clients who can be a little bit needy. I think we need to remember that our clients can't interfere with the patients or clients that are in front of us. And that's sort of how I try to draw the line. If a client is taking away from my lunch hour or keeping me late at work, even though I know that that's going to happen every once in a while, it's got to remain kind of uh, respecting that work balance. And, and that's how I keep my lines. Sydney, what about from an associate veterinarian perspective? Where where are these definitions and boundaries? I love what Becky said because a lot of clients don't know where those boundaries are. And I think it's important to show them where they are, both in the sense of where they can't go. So if a client asks us for our personal home phone number or calls us at home, which it's astounding how many times you hear stories like that, where we have to say, hey, I apologize, but please don't call me at this home number. Um, We also have to let clients know what's okay. Um, Let clients know 
yes, if you're not seeing improvement uh, from your pet, we want to hear from you. Uh, no, I have plenty of time to hear back from you if things aren't going as expected. So um, yeah, I, I think it's important for us to make clear to owners when they're in for our appointment what is okay. And if they overstep those boundaries, let them know what's not okay. And it does depend on the individual. I think some people are okay with uh, having a professional email and having clients email them there. Uh, I do that at work. I uh, am not in the hospital every day. So I like clients being able to email me. I make sure it's clear they can't do that on an emergency basis. But for some people, they don't think that's appropriate. Right. And, and Cindy, that's a really good point that, that you're bringing up is the ways that, that clients can access us has changed dramatically. I mean, when I think back to 25 years ago when I started my first veterinary clinic, People can only access me through my telephone and my pager. Yes, I carried the pager, and that beeping sound still elicits a very strong cortisol response in my body. So now these clients can get you on social media. They can get you on your your text messaging. I mean, they can access us in so many ways. And, and I think this is blurring the lines between demanding high maintenance and inappropriate. And so, Cindy, how have, have you seen or heard of stories where clients have sort of abused or somehow, you know, taken advantage of these new ways to communicate with, with doctors? Absolutely. I've heard of folks who clients reached out via social media or reached out via phone and tried to get advice from people. Um, I, I hear about it more when veterinarians have friends as clients, um, some vets don't set that boundary correctly in the first place. So it's harder once you've given somebody your phone number or once you've friended somebody okay. on Facebook to stop that access. So I think we have a responsibility. If you don't want to be contacted there, don't give out that information. Um, but if somebody is a friend, those lines get a bit more blurry and then we have to kind of assert ourselves there. Um, but Be I, yeah. Becky, what about technicians? Are you hearing stories of this sort of a, a abuse of, of the relationship? I think it's easy to abuse a relationship with technicians because we spend a little bit more time, I think, with the client and having sort of a more low-key, friendly, back-and-forth rapport with our clients. And I think they're a little bit more comfortable to ask us questions like, we are more likely to volunteer to go to the client's house and do sub-Q fluids or injections when they need them than I think our, our doctors are. We tend to pick up those tasks. And therefore, we easily cross those lines because now we're in their home or we end up pet sitting. Um, we end up, you know, giving our cell phone number because we're going to go over there and they have to text when they're home. And so I think it becomes a little bit easier. I really like the um, conversation, though, about social media. And I really want to hear how our listeners deal with that. Do you friend or not? Or do you accept or deny the friend requests that come from your clients? That's a tough one. And Becky, you bring up a really important point, and that is as the veterinary technician profession progresses and advances, our clients look to you for more and more detailed medical advice and information. And so you're right, we are sort of inviting this additional incursion into our private lives. But getting back to that whole first question is, when do we define you as crossing the line? Like, like Cindy, when is it too much? Yeah, and I, I think starts getting to be too much when it starts interfering with our ability to take care of ourselves and to take care of other clients and patients. And that's how I define it for myself. So if we're not able to get home, if we're not able to take care of our family, if we're not able to sleep, if we're not able to get into that next appointment, that's where I bump up against my barrier. 
So, Becky, what do you do as a, as a veterinary technician when that text or that tweet comes in at 10 p.m.? You're clearly not at your office. How do you respond? How do you handle that? Generally, I don't respond. And what I'll do is text the next day and say, you know, now that I'm at the office, I've had the opportunity to read your text message. And here's the information. And I sort of will politely, hopefully, maybe semi passive aggressively um, (laughs) say that these are the hours that I work within and that these are the hours that are appropriate to text me. And you just nailed this entire issue on the head. And that is, it is really incumbent upon us, the healthcare professionals, to define these boundaries. So if you encourage and invite these 10 p.m. tweets and and text messages, fine. But if you don't, you're going to have to make that clear. And I'll tell you what we the, the strategies that we've used, and it's such an evolving, dynamic you know environment. But over the years, we've seen this go again from the pager beep 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 to the text message on the phone. And what we've tried to do is be very clear and upfront with our clients, saying, you know, I'm available for you during these hours, and I'm not. And if you have an emergency, you're going to need to contact these you know this individual. And it's really it's it's a complex matter because my generation, we handled for the majority of our careers, our own emergency calls. So we did invite that incursion. I was used to taking those calls, but you know, the newer generation, Cindy, you know, maybe you haven't grown up in that environment. Tell me, tell me your experiences about setting boundaries. Yeah. And that has always been interesting for me. I have actually not worked at a practice outside of vet school where I have been on call. Um, And that's a blessing for me. I have many friends who still have, even though they graduated in my generation. And I'm very thankful for that. But I also see the side effects of that. I have many clients who've ended up at emergency rooms overnight and have had to spend a lot more money because they ended up at an emergency room or clients who chose not to take their pet to the emergency room and their pet got more sick overnight or didn't do well overnight. So I struggle with, with whether or not that's okay. So the way we've coped with it is trying to educate our clients when they are in the clinic as best we can to prepare them to know when they need to go, when they don't need to go, um, and to if they're going to need to come into the hospital first thing in the morning, how to recognize that. All right. Well, Cindy, you bring up another interesting point, and that is you 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 know you talk about in the beginning here about taking care of ourselves and when it interferes with your personal life ability to take care of yourself, that's too far. And yet the other part, I'm hearing this inherent guilt that our profession possesses (laughs) towards this emergency care. So how do you, how do we settle that? Yeah. And I think different practices take care of it in a different way. One of the things I do consider is that our emergency practices often can provide better care than I can provide myself. So many times they have better facilities. They do have people who are particularly trained in that. So I think that takes is, takes some of the guilt away from me. Um, but also I realize that a caring profession is often not going to be a completely guilt-free profession. We can never give our patients 100% of, of what we'd like, mostly because we can't provide free care. I think we discussed that a lot last week. So I think all of us decide there's a certain point of what we can give and how much of ourselves we can give and find a place we feel okay with. Well, Becky, um, Cindy brings up a really, uh, another very interesting 
point, and that is, here we are, you know, do they provide better care at the emergency clinics? I know you work with emergency clinics and in the clinics. So do they provide better care? So that gives us one out. But on the other hand, we're a caring profession, and by golly, we want to save every animal every time. So you're on both sides of this issue, because uh, if you don't know, Becky works in both emergency clinics, you know, and certainly regular clinics. Um, how, do, how do you settle that? You know, that's hard because I think that emergency clinics vary across the board geographically and by location and what the they can provide. Um, I personally think nothing beats 24-hour care. And I always try to remind my clients, like, hey, I just don't want you to be in a situation at 3 a.m. that I can't help you with. And so we can cut that off at the pass by transferring over here. Um, I've seen veterinarians and technicians take cases home at night. And again, this is where we sort of get into that work-life balance difficulty. I think the access is the best at a 24-hour clinic. They have everything that they need. They have it right there. And sometimes we have to put our, our, our ego aside and say this might be where they're best. And, and Becky, I'd like to just sort of follow up on that. And the reality is this. For many, many years, for nearly 20 years, I took my own emergency calls. I took many dogs and cats and wild assortment of animals to my home for care overnight. And I can't be as good as that clinic who is set up, dedicated, has all of the resources to take care of that pet. So I think as a profession, if we're truly interested in raising standards of care, we're going to have to understand that I can't do that on my kitchen table anymore. Now, getting back to the high maintenance clients and the boundaries and the demanding, you know, there also seems to be a bit of a paradox that sometimes the most demanding clients are the most compliant. So Cindy, you know, you mentioned this in the very beginning. Tell us about your experience with that, what some people would call high maintenance, maybe even crossing the boundaries, but yet they tend to be our best clients. Yeah. And that's one of the things I find really enjoyable. And I find at the front end, if we invest that initial time into those clients and build trust with them um, and kind of check in on a regular basis, I find them to be some of the most emotionally rewarding clients for me to work with as a practitioner. And I see those patients over the long term and they live nice, long, long lives with me. So I find them very enjoyable to work with. Um, So that's just my personal take. Yeah. And I'll give you one little brief follow-up on that is the fact that many times we misinterpret the client and we do it both ends of the spectrum, meaning that we think somebody is high maintenance, inappropriate, demanding, and yet they just are really concerned pet owner and and they want more information. They're eager, enthusiastic, and desperate for our help. And on the other end of the coin, we have these people that we think, that's my best client. And they're the ones that will take the most advantage of us. So I'd say, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, I'd love to hear your thoughts on when you've guessed wrong and when you've sort of misassigned that client and wound up getting burned by it, because I think we can all you know, regale you with with stories that that really don't end well. Becky, when we're talking about clients, we can't dismiss the fact that we have to educate them because they are providing care by proxy to an animal that cannot care for itself. So in the context of this, you've got a client who's demanding more and more information. They're, They're seeking Dr. Google. When do we cross the line with the education aspect? Do you follow? 
I do, because you're right. We are trying to juggle, you know, a little bit here and make sure we give them enough information that they feel empowered and we, you know, avoid the Dr. Google situation. I think number one is be educated about, you know, what resources are there out there? You know, there are things such as like um, Ask Pet MD that's staffed by a professional doctor and veterinary technicians. Um, so we have uh, resources we can actually send them to that are not Dr. Google. But I really like what Dr. Cindy said as far as, um, you know, educating. But um, I know I posted to our Facebook page um, recently about a study that was out of the UK that says owners don't read what we hand them. So how are we educating to make sure that they're getting what they need, which is generally going to be talking to them, but are they listening? Are they reading what we're giving them? It's It truly is a struggle. And I don't know that I have the best answer. Um, I, I'd love to hear what some of our listeners do, but I think it comes down to spending time with that client genuinely, be in the moment when you're with them, ask them what questions they have, those open-ended questions, so you can make sure you get down to the root of their concerns, their questions, and, and hopefully you avoid them feeling alone at 3 a.m. and not knowing what to do. I completely agree. I think it's tempting to just hand them a handout and expect them to read it, and a lot of people don't. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask both of you is how we deal with the conundrum of educating the other people at home. I don't know if you guys experience this, but often the person walking in the door is not always the primary pet's caretaker. So when we explain everything verbally to someone and that person is not going to be the one actually giving medications, actually living with the pet, how do you guys handle those pet education difficulties in, in getting the whole household educated? Yeah, in my practice management lectures, Cindy, for years, I've called this the double dialogue. And mm -hmm. basically, the, the, the husband or the, the child or the, the animal caretaker brings in the pet, and then we explain to them, this is what you have to do for the ear, this is the diagnosis, the treatment, the prognosis, and so forth. And then, after you've spent 10 minutes explaining that, later, you get a phone call from the owner, the mother, the whatever, and they're like, uh, can you please explain to me what's going on with my dog? And And... I don't have that perfect solution, you know, like many clinics, you know, we've certainly innovated and created many different what we thought were very clever and effective forms of written communication. We, of course, uh, progressed to more online or things that we could transmit electronically. But you're right, that double dialogue exists. And, and Becky, from a technician perspective, you know, how do, when it's somebody else is bringing it into the ER, how do you how do you handle that? Yeah, I you know, that's a really good point. And like you said, I don't know that I have the perfect answer. Nothing more frustrating, though, than getting a case into the ER that, say, went home without an e-collar or, you know, and again, you're always getting the third party story about, well, they didn't tell me or I didn't know this. But, um, you know, a lot of times we do say things come into the emergency room that I think really could have been avoided by by just some client education. And a lot of times I really do believe the client because I think they'd much <laughs> rather not be at the emergency room. They would have left the e-collar on or, or had done whatever it was they were supposed to do. So um, I think it's easy for us to get consumed. And I also think sometimes when we've said something a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand times, we almost forget that the person we're talking to doesn't already know the information. It's the first time they heard it. So even though we know to explain to leave the e-collar on all the time, yes, if you're not in arm's reach, leave it on. Yes, that means drinking. Yes, that means eating. But they've only heard this the first time. So we need to have that conversation like it's the first time every time. And Becky, I think you bring up such a great example with the e-collar. Um, I definitely know there are certain items that are challenging to get across to owners. For And I'm curious to know if there are specifics you guys struggle with. For me, 
exercise restriction is probably at the top of my list. I feel like um, when I talk about, yes, no, really, we have to cage rest your pet. Yes, it's really important. No, your pet will come back and still be limping and we will not get that injury under control. Um, I feel like I've tried 10 billion different ways to explain it and still struggling with that one. Are there certain things that you still struggle to get across to owners that you feel they they walk away and go home and, and still do the wrong thing? Right. For me, it's always wrapped around nutrition. I'm typically giving nutritional advice, uh, a therapeutic diet or a change in supplementation or something, you know, like that. And they do it for like a week and then it's suddenly like, I don't think you really like that. You know, I didn't, you know, he, he stopped eating that or whatever. And, and so that's frustrating. I, do, I don't have an answer for that. I think, you know, over, over my 25 years of practice, I've, I feel like I've gotten better and better at effectively communicating with clients. Having said that, I think I will die realizing that there's a tremendous gap that still is in existence. And I, I would guess most healthcare professionals feel the same way. Becky, from a technician perspective? I mean, I 100% agree. And I think we all have our pet peeves in our areas that, you know, just need to be addressed. Um, I, I think it's compliance as a whole. You know, um, I think I could count if I let's say if this if I had a dollar for every time if a, an owner told me they had some antibiotics left over, I probably wouldn't have to work at all. And so, you know, that's another example of just where we're not getting through to them. Um, I kind of want to go back like I often do and, and reiterate when one thing. Dr. Cindy said, which is the follow-up. So we could maybe avoid some of this by making sure we are really doing great follow-up. Are we following up on our surgeries, even just our our well visits the next day? Hey, did you think of any questions when you got home that you forgot to ask? Because, you know, we know we won't see you for a year, so we just want to make sure we've got this covered. Um, Really touching base with a client makes them feel important. It gives them the opportunity to feel like they can communicate with you, and it gives us the opportunity to know that we are following up and knowing questions are being answered. And that is the recipe for success. And sort of wrapping up this part of the discussion, I want to get your perspectives and I want to hear from our listeners as well. So you have the client who, by your definition, crosses the line. It's now too much. It's inappropriate. It's time to shut it down. Cindy, what are, what's your advice or what do you do? How do you handle those situations? Yeah. So for me, I tend to Take a deep breath, first of all, because often in that moment, I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling emotional. um, And so I take a deep breath, first of all. And then I try and figure out what it is the client is asking of me and what their immediate need is and try and assess how urgent that need is. And if there is genuinely an immediate need, I address that first. And then when there any urgent immediate need is taken care of, I will talk with them about what happened and where the boundary was crossed and what the appropriate action is to take next time and what will happen if they cross that boundary again and say, hey, if you contact me on my home number next time, I will not be able to answer and I will refer you to the emergency number. So that's usually my approach. Nice. Becky? Well, uh, like I said, I think I kind of try to respond within normal business hours. Um, and if it, if it's something that needs to verbally be addressed, just kind of put it out there and say, Hey, I, I know I gave you my number when I was coming over to do fluids, but we've kind of gotten past that. And so it, it is better if you contact me when I'm here and just try to politely redirect them. The nice thing about being support staff though, is you always have a manager or a doctor to <laughs> default to. So, uh, if I can't handle it, I'm like, Hey doc, 
I can eat your help. And uh, I'll bring in my support staff to help me out, and, and I'll take the, the chicken way out. Well, and I'll tell you, Becky and Cindy, I respect that chicken way out because I think that's the right way. As a practice management expert, as a practice owner for many, many years and a veterinarian, I, I think it is incumbent sometimes on the management, the ownership to, to actually go out and, and you know contact that client and say, listen, you know, Dr. Smith, you know, I understand you guys uh, had some uh, conversation over the weekend. And, and listen, I love Dr. Smith just as much as you do. And we are really at risk of, of you know, burning him out if, if we don't, you know, sort of limit that exposure. So I, I try to protect him on the weekends. You know, certainly we want you to feel comfortable reaching out to us by email. And if somebody is able to, you know, we will try to get back with you. But your best resource is going to be this emergency click, clinic number and go from there. Um, so I don't I don't have a problem with the associates and the technicians sort of kicking it up a level. And I'll tell you, if you're listening now and your management owners do not support you in these issues, then you know, come talk to me, come talk to me. So I don't think we have solved all the problems, but what we're trying to do is kick off conversations in the real world. So we want to hear from you. Make sure that you, you hit us up on Twitter at Vet Viewfinder, uh, on Facebook at the Veterinary Viewfinder Facebook page. We want to hear your thoughts, your experiences, and your solutions to the dilemma of where the boundaries with clients lie. So for that conversation, I think uh, I'd like to take this out in the real world. Absolutely. And I know we had hoped to kind of wrap up today's episode by giving a nod to the upcoming holidays. Our wonderful uh, Becky Mosser had recently asked a group of uh, veterinary health folks on Facebook to share some of their holiday cases and holiday experiences and she was going to share some of those with us and we were going to share some of our most memorable holiday cases as well. Okay, guys. So I love these Facebook social groups that pop up, especially the special interest groups that sort of focus to one side or another. And this is one that I really enjoy, and it's ER Vet Tech Rounds. And so shortly after Thanksgiving, I was looking for some holiday spirit and asked everybody about some memorable cases that they had gotten. Um, it really sparked a lot of fun conversation. So I encourage you, if you are a member of that group, to check it out. Or if you haven't, check out that group, um, become a member, and get involved with conversation. So um, there were over 51 replies of different fun stories of different holiday hijinks. Um, and some of them were Mother's Day and got off to other holidays. But I did have a couple stories about dogs who got into maybe some rum-soaked punch and spent the holidays a little under the weather. So even though we always feel bad for those guys, we can't help but chuckle. Um, I couldn't help but find myself amused about uh, all the chocolate vomit and how technicians really just enjoy chocolate vomit as a whole. And we always <laughs> talk about how now the smell of chocolate vomit just kind of makes you hungry. So I was hysterical about that. My Hasht number one... Hashtag chocolate vomit. Let's, so gross. Let's that trending. <laughs> right? Hashtag chocolate vomit. And then my favorite pick, so I picked my most favorite, was from Sarah. And she talked about a dog um, who presented at the holidays with red urine. And so they did a plethora of testing only to find out that this particular dog actually ate a red Christmas ornament and that wow. there was some kind of weird dye in the ornament that made this dog's urine turned bright red and the dog ultimately was fine urine returned back to normal but i thought that was sort of a, a real holiday treat with some red urine <laughs> merry christmas wow it's always nice when they turns out to be fine and the pet turns out fine too um i mentioned in one of our previous episodes my first holiday emergency surgery was to remove a jingle bell so i won't revisit that case too in depth 
But it's a reminder to be careful of around holiday toys. I had another holiday case with a dog that got into a super ball, uh, one of those very bouncy rubber balls. And a pet owner was away and another couple was taking care of this dog and the dog got the super ball stuck in its trachea. And unfortunately, that did not have such a happy ending for that dog. But just be careful with all those little stocking stuffers over the holidays for sure. Wow. You know, and, and I think for me, uh, there was a, a great case many years ago. Uh, like most people, you know, we live in an area where people are visiting. I live at the beach. So, you know, tourists are coming in. Regardless, uh, family gathering, Labrador retriever and a turkey. And of course, it ended up with the turkey in the lab, uh, which ended the lab up in my clinic for emergency obstruction. And uh, so the reason I share this story is because I literally on uh, Christmas Eve this year of that year, I had about 20 family members crammed into the lobby because it was this massive family gathering. And I will tell you, that was one of the most stressful surgeries I've ever done because I had 40 sets of eyes, you know, kind of prying down on me, I felt like. And, uh, of course, it turned out great, but uh, it was one of those things where, you know, it was a Christmas miracle to them, but, you know, it was really scary and stressful for myself and my team. Well, that wraps it up for another edition of The Veterinary Viewfinder. So we want to hear from you. Hit us up on Twitter, on Facebook. We want to know your stories, your solutions. But more importantly, we also want to know what you want to hear us talk about. We want to tackle the toughest topics in veterinary medicine, the things that affect us, our patients, and the pet parents that we love. On behalf of our team, I am Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm Dr. Cindy Courtney. And this is Becky Mosser. And we would like to wish you a happy and safe holiday season. Bye. Bye. Merry Christmas.